Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. All right, this is going to be a great episode. I'm excited about this because one of the most important things in my life, and to be perfectly honest, I don't know what that says about me, but has always been video games. You know, I, I was always a little behind the times when it came to consoles. You know, our family didn't have as much money as some of the other kids. So I was always one or two consoles behind. But in fact, I think that gave me a huge advantage because I had access to and played video games that I wouldn't normally have given my age group. Like I was part of an Atari system and a game system, which is, you know, was is quintessential to the history of video games. And, you know, I, I was, it was a little before my time, but I was able to not only play them, but they were a significant part of my childhood. I played on the Atari, the Nintendo, the Super Nintendo, the PlayStation, uh, PlayStation 2, all the way up to current day. I've always loved video games, but really, you know, that nostalgic time, my favorite time were the really the Atari and Nintendo years. Uh, and, and today I'm talking to one of the world's foremost collectors of, of historically significant and rare video game paraphernalia, uh, and that is Sean Kelly. And he is a co-founder of the National Video Game Museum, and in my opinion, that is a much-needed museum in the world. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm very excited about this. You know, I, I, I've, I've seen his collection. I've, I've seen a lot of the cool items. We're going to get into all of that stuff as well as the history of video games. We're going to try to weave those two things together. And I'm very excited about this. You know, there's a ton of people who love video games and love old video games. And it was a part of their childhood, you know, video game. The video game industry is over 40 years old. So there's lots of people that are like into this stuff, which is why it's so cool that you have so many vintage video game paraphernalia of, you know, um, Cuban collecting for quite a long time. And you have so much stuff to start a museum. I mean, that's that's pretty incredible. Uh, so when you when you were a kid, were were you like a, a video game savant? I mean, were you like known as the third Mario brother or how did you really get into video games? <laughs> you got the mustache. You kind of you kind of could fit into the Mario clan. You know what I mean? <laughs> I guess I could. Um, we uh, so we got a Pong when I was a kid. It was probably 1972 or 73, something like that. Um, uh-huh. And you know, my my dad bought a Pong, and it was it was it wasn't the actual Atari Pong. It was the Coleco version. It was called Coleco Telstar. And we used to bring that you know bring that thing out on Saturday nights or something when there was nothing to do, and we would sit and play Pong. And you know everybody got a kick out of it. And my first actual video game console uh, was an Intellivision. I got that and. 79 soon after it came out um and we my dad and i we just sat and played that thing till three o'clock in the morning it, it, we literally broke it. it it just overheated and we had to return it the next day and, and get another console but, uh, well, you broke it the day then, I was, the day you bought it you broke it we broke it the first day yeah we, we just played it non-stop <laughs> and the early television systems were notorious for having uh power supply issues so the very early ones if wow. you played them too long and let them get too hot it wasn't that difficult to burn them up so we broke it that first night and we literally returned it the next the next day and, and uh, 
got another one. Didn't we didn't have any marathon sessions quite that long the, after the first <laughs> game. We broke for, for a while. So. Wow. Well, and that was but, the days uh, before you could get like a fan because I remember I burned out a PlayStation Three and I had to buy like this big fan you could put on it to cool it down. I mean, this is you know that this is way before all of that. Like those, I can't even imagine those things got that hot. It's amazing they're pulling that much power. But that's pretty. That's an incredible feat. That's got to be in the Guinness Book somewhere. <laughs> I would think so, but you know they they didn't have fans back then in, inside the system. They they didn't think that they would get that hot. But some of them, you know, if you left them on long enough, they they would get hot. And, and uh, we certainly proved that you could cook them. What was the what was the game that put it over the edge? Like, were you guys? What was the game you guys were playing? Well, we only played. We only bought two games at launch. We bought uh, it came with uh, Las Vegas Poker and Blackjack, which was a fun game. But then uh, it came with the baseball game, and, and uh, uh, that's what my dad and I played. We sat and played baseball, and baseball on television for his time. It was it was a great game. It was so well done. It was so much better than what they had on Atari. Atari's uh, uh, version of baseball, baseball at, the, at that time was called Home Run, and it was just so bad. And, and uh, in television, it looked lifelike, and it talked by by stringing some sounds together that sounded like oh, talking wow. and it was just uh, it was so much fun we we had a blast that we played baseball all night and he never beat me it's funny we had in television for five years my dad never beat me once is that right holy cow really pissed him off he couldn't do it. is that like a point of contention does do you guys still talk about that at all <laughs> not, not to this day but back at that time like in my family circle, like my dad and his brothers, and a couple of them had bought in televisions, and and we would always play a baseball games to each other, and not a single one of them ever beat me. It, it really, my uncle would have me come over and pick me up and take me over to his house so we could play baseball and try and beat me. And you know, and at some point it kind of got boring for me. Cause they, <laughs> they but you know, it's funny because I'm the same way. You know, now now I'm I'm my dad's age, and yeah. at, at that time I'm older than my dad was at that time, and. You know, I can't, like, I have daughters, so they're not huge into video games. I have four daughters, but when their boyfriends come over and their boyfriends want to play, the boyfriends pretty much can kick my butt at, at any game they want to. So I guess right. it just goes with the age. <laughs> well, I mean, it's. I just hope that, that it didn't ruin, like, Thanksgiving dinner or anything. That definitely seems like something that could have, no. like, ruined holidays or whatever. But you guys handled it well, very maturely. It didn't, it didn't ruin anything, but it was, you know, you could be in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner and, and you know, any any insert random uncle's name here and drop his fork and let's go right now. You're right. you and me and we would go for the face. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, like, I was I grew up pretty poor, so I was always, like, a couple of uh, generations behind everyone else. So I remember... You know, we'll, we're going to kind of, I'd like to kind of weave in the history of video games along with all the cool stuff that you have, because those are like the two things that I love. And hopefully some of our interests will align. So, uh, like when I was, when I was a kid, you know, obviously the Nintendo Entertainment System, like that was really, you know, Atari was the first system to really like change home gaming. I mean, when people had that, I mean, it changed everything. And then there was a huge crash in 1983, and then Nintendo kind of brought video games back, and then they never left from that point forward, really. Um, so when Nintendo came out, uh, I, I was a little young for, for video games, but I remember a couple of years later, they re-released the Atari 2600. And just for people listening, the way consoles worked is each generation was almost like double the ability of the one before. So... Uh, Nintendo was probably, you know, for lack of, of sp- specifics, was probably twice as good as Atari. But I remember, like, all my friends had a Nintendo, 
And then my mom bought me an Atari because we could afford it. Because it was like, I remember the, the cartoon was like, it's under 50 bucks. 50 bucks? Yeah. Now, isn't that nice? Uh, do you remember that commercial? Yeah, that's actually called The Fun is Back. That's a little, a little jingle that Atari. <laughs> under 50 bucks. Yeah. yeah. Were you involved with that? No. Did you write that? <laughs> no, I wasn't. But actually, in my store, I have a, I have a TV that, that plays uh, just a constant loop of like, vintage uh, music videos and and tv commercials and i have about 350 tv commercials from that area and there are a couple of one couple of oh, them wow. in that fun is back series that that i i hear almost daily so <laughs> i could pretty much <laughs> sing the song if i wanted to oh that is so funny yeah i remember when that came out that that's so why i had the atari so i to my credit at the time when atari was way passe i had probably all the like really cool games and actually you're probably one of the only people who will appreciate this so when atari was really in its last legs and i didn't know this as well they were making the atari 2600 until 1992 uh i did not stutter people 1992 so i think it was in production from like 70 uh you correct me if i'm wrong you're 70 79 until 92 does that sound right I think it was 77. 77. Okay. That's a long time. That's like almost 20, it's 19 years, um, which I had no idea. But towards the end, they had, there were two games where they really tried to like, it was the, the where Atari tried to compete with like arcades. Uh, and they made Rampage and they made Double Dragon, which were two really big games for Nintendo and in the, more in the arcade world. Do you remember these games? One of those games were made by Activision, actually. They weren't made by Atari, but they were made by Activision for Atari. For Atari, yeah. Yeah, I do. I remember. Yeah. The uh, Double Dragon, I believe, was programmed by Dan Kitchen, who's, who's a pretty good friend of mine. And, uh, yeah, so what they could do on the Atari 2600, uh, they were, you know, pushing the envelope. But at that time, and, and it's the same today. So, you know, as people learn how to program these systems, they get better and better and better at at uh, figuring out the intricacies and, and how to make the hardware do things that people didn't think that they would ever be able to do. And by the time Double Dragon um, and uh, Rampage came out, uh, both of those games um, both of those games were right at the very end of it, and those guys knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. They, they figured out pretty much all the tricks with the Atari CPU and, and could get, get the absolute most out of that. Uh, you know, it's, it's not going to compare to the Nintendo version of it, but for Atari 2600... Both those games are, are fairly impressive. Yeah. Well, especially when you look at like a game like Combat for the Atari, which was like you running around in a tank, which is pretty basic. I mean, it's right. like one step up from Pong. And then a game where you're playing like a gigantic ape smashing a building um, with the same graphics capabilities. Uh, it was pretty impressive. And I like the Atari as an example historically because, again, they were building it for 19 years. Uh, it really was the first home system. It kind of changed the way people really thought of video games. And almost everyone alive, or at least who knows video games, outside of like people under maybe under 25, know what the Atari is um, and had some exposure to one. Because I think, you know, inside every home, there's a refrigerator, a microwave, and an Atari 2600 for a very long period of time. There were. Yeah, it was, it was by far the dominant system of its time. I had... I had the Intellivision, and as much as I liked the Intellivision, um, every other week there was some new game coming out on Atari 2600 that I wished I could play, and I, I couldn't. <laughs> right. it, was, it was definitely, uh, you know, even though I was, you know, very uh, adamant that Intellivision was a better system, 
you know, Atari had uh, also the uh, arcade presence and all those arcade licenses mm-hmm. to, to draw on. Mm-hmm. So they were able to put out games like, you know, Defender and, and Pac-Man and Miss right. Pac-Man and, and all those great ar- arcade arcade titles that uh, Intellivision and, and Atari's other competitors never had. Well, and you bring up an interesting point. So what, what's kind of funny about the about video game history is I believe... The first video game system, uh, and I know there's a lot of technical stuff here. I know you're going to probably correct me, but the Magnavox Odyssey is kind of the first, which is really just Pong with like a film overlay on your television. So you weren't actually like putting new games into it. It wasn't like a a cartridge-based system. Uh, So that was like really the first one. But, you know, does that that sound about right, The, the Magnavox being the first home system? Yeah. Magnavox Odyssey was the first. It was a little bit, uh, give it a little bit more credit. Okay. It was a little bit more than the song, but okay. th- not much. Not much. They, they could really only draw a block on the screen, and that block would move around on, like you say, the little overlays that you pasted onto your TV screen with uh, uh, via static electricity. That's what held it on oh, there. Wow. Some people would put tape associated, but. Uh, yeah, so there it was a little bit there was a little bit more to it than Pong, but not not much. And no the, what added to it is a lot of the games on the Odyssey they came out with little chips and little boards and all sorts of little trinkets that you know that you used as part of the game that you were interacting with on the T V. So that's why I say it's a little bit more than Pong, but not not much. Okay, no, that's fair. You know, it's it so that kinda came out and and then you had um, Pong was the real the first really big thing. And I got to tell you, actually, again, you're going to be the guy to remember this. So when I was a kid, my grandmother, you know, and again, this is in the age of the Nintendo Entertainment System, but my grandmother had this old version of Pong. It was it was so it was a video game system. It had four games. It was it was uh, Pong. It was it basically it wasn't called Pong. It was called tennis, hockey, squash. Um, and something else. So basically it had like this big clicker at the top, so you can click the four games. They were all basically Pong-esque, you know, a big vertical line with a ball going in between. Um, does this does this ring a bell? It had like a slider. You, you didn't have a controller. It was like a slider, and there were only two sliders to the system, and you hooked it up. Uh, you could play against a computer or against, you know, someone else. Does this game sound familiar, the system? It, it sounds like the Unisonic one, but the thing about Pong and, and its... Uh, clones or derivatives is that there were literally hundreds of them hundreds of there are people out there that collect only pong systems and have oh, wow. these massive collections of these little pong consoles and there are literally hundreds of different ones out there so the one that you're describing sounds kind of like uh, a model that was made by a company called unisonic but uh there are so many of them, and there are, and, and the similarities between the each of them are are great, and it's very difficult to distinguish between the others without actually seeing a picture. But the one that you're talking about was not an Atari. One Atari was was you know the original home Pong, and uh, right. um, like I said, there were a lot of people that followed them. Right. Well, and so it's funny. So the point I was making is that you know when you had the Intellivision, and you know you had the the Atari system was coming out with games you really wanted to play. At this time, when video games were kind of new, it's crazy. I was looking back, and I remember some of these at the time, where that there were lots of different companies and lots of different systems. So, like the ColecoVision was another one that was that was really popular at the time. Well, it was it was popular in the same way that like beta beta tapes were popular. It was it was a pretty good system, but not a lot of people bought it. And I remember having a babysitter who had like an old ColecoVision, so I played this penguin game called Penguin Adventure uh, and Bump and Jump. 
And you know, and you had in television. Atari was out. There were there were other competitors at this time. How crowded was the market uh, for like companies and systems all vying like in the early, late seventies and the early eighties? That's the, that was one of the problems. You know, a lot of people uh, innocently refer to the the video game market crashing in in late eighty three, uh, early eighty four, and, and a lot of people say, oh, you know, that game made by Atari ET killed the market or Pac Man killed the market. But there were so many different reasons for the the video game crash, and one of them is like you say, there were a lot of different consoles. So the problem is, you know. If you think about it, most of the video game sales, at least at that time, it's not so much today, but most of the video game sales at that time were made by parents who didn't know anything about them. The kids wanted a video game. Mm. Parents went to Toys R Us or wherever their local retailer or Sears or whatnot, and they wanted to pick out a video game console. And the more there was for them to choose from, the more they became fed up. You know what? I'm I'm not buying any of this crap. I'll get get them a bicycle or I'll get them this or that or... Yeah. But, so you know, as it as it became so convoluted, the the parents didn't understand. And the same thing goes for the games. You know, when uh, you know when that market crash was happening, what was really happening is that you know not only did they not know what systems to buy, there were new systems coming out. ColecoVision was 1983, um, and Atari had their own Atari 5200, which was a next generation system. And yeah, in television, there were all these different systems out at the same time. And parents went, I don't know what which one to buy. And then the kids are complaining that. The the $50 game that they buy stinks. I I just bought ET and this game sucks. I don't want to play it. (laughs) The parents like, I I, I don't, I don't know what to get you. You know, and and I think everybody's kind of threw their hands up uh, at the same time. Both, both parents and and kids alike, uh, for for that matter. It wasn't just uh, one or the other. I think it was both. I think they were both just fed up with bad games and and too much confusion and and yeah, we don't need this crap. And they kind of they kind of went away. But like you say, it was it was only for a year or two until Nintendo kind of revitalized things. Right. Well, you know, and it is funny because there's, there's a great documentary about um, the Atari. I forget what it's called. It escapes me. But, uh, you know, they basically, they're on a search for this 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 stash, this buried in the desert um, stash of old yeah. E.T. games. It's a really interesting documentary, but they kind of go into the crash a little bit more. E.T. does kind of get the, uh, the brunt of the blame for that happening. Uh, it wasn't, it was more like I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if I'm if I'm looking, I'm looking at the history and, and I'm and I'm kind of analyzing it. It seems to me that like E.T. was kind of like the poster child for everything that could go wrong. It was a game that was supposed to be great. It had a big budget and a big name, great marketing. A lot of the Atari games had great pictures on them that did not represent what the game actually was. And, and and they didn't put any time or effort into actually developing a good game. They turned it around in like five weeks. They're you know doing pulling all nighters. And the game that came out, I remember playing it all the time, and I could actually beat that game. Most people didn't know how to beat it, uh, but but I remember. I just think that it just represented all the things that were wrong with with the just the the, the world of a, of video games at that particular time. Um, but as you mentioned, I don't think it was the exact cause for it. I think there were lots of other factors. But it is a very interesting moment in time um, because a lot of things change. Atari, which was a dominant company kind of went away from the video game console production. I mean, they're obviously making the Atari 2600 until 1992, but as far as any real developments and innovations, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, you know, the Super Nintendo was out in 1992, which is which is already two generations ahead of the Atari system. So that, that kind of put the nail in the coffin for Atari as um, a console company, right? Not a content company. They continued to make games, but... 
but um, but a console company, right? Well, it was that was the choice of, of management at the time. Uh, uh, Sam, I think it was either Sam or Jack. I, I get them confused. But the, the Tremiel brothers owned Atari, and and the the Tremiels decided that they wanted to put uh, most of their emph- emphasis on computers. They didn't want to make a video game console. Uh, something super interesting, two, two interesting things to, to to note about that time. First, first of all, when uh, when Nintendo came, uh, was trying to distribute the uh, the original NES, they came to Atari and asked Atari if they would be interested in in marketing the uh, the NES here in, in the United States for Nintendo. And Atari told them no. Um, the other thing about it is that at that time, uh, and this was 1985 when the original Nintendo came out, so Atari's original console or programmable console was the Atari 2600, and then the successor to that was the Atari 5200, which came out about 1983. There were only about 80 games made for the 5200 because the market crashed and they just gave up on it. But Atari had already developed the Atari 7800 before the NES even came out. And the Atari 7800 is the third in their series, and it has Nintendo style and their, you know, graphics and capabilities comparable to the original Nintendo. And that system was developed waiting to be sold, and the Tremiel said, no, we don't want to do it. We don't want to sell the 7800. We want to, we want to concentrate on, on home computers. That's where the future is. And uh, I mean, there was some sense to their thought. Yeah, computers were, were coming, and they knew that they were going to be big. and, and uh, But I think that they were looking at it a little bit wrong in that there's not a there's not a place for both home video game consoles and computers. They thought it had to be one or the other. They thought that computers were just going to take over the video game industry and there weren't going to be any consoles. And and they were wrong about that. So, uh, but like I said, uh, they had their third generation console ready to be sold before Nintendo was even released and they could have sold it. They, they just chose not. You know, it's funny because now that you mentioned that I do realize that they did have the 5200 and the 7800, which I remember seeing some commercials for, but I never knew anyone that had one. Uh, and I, you know, until, yeah. until I looked into it as an adult, I didn't really understand the difference. I didn't know if it was a generational difference or if it was just like, a, you know, like the 2600 beefed up, you know, with like better games or, you know, whatever, better sound. I don't know what, what it would be. Um, but I, I didn't realize that the 7800 was almost NES com- like comparable. It is, yeah, and they, and they're you know it's just like it's just like in, in today's terms it would be PlayStation one, two, and three. Oh, so right, yeah. So twenty six hundred is the first generation. The fifty two hundred is your PlayStation two, and then the seventy hundred would be your PlayStation three. It's it's the uh, it's the same thing. The, the seventy hundred was a, it was a decent system. It it, uh, it was relatively powerful and had had just as much power as the, as the Nintendo. But by that time, by the time that the seventy eight hundred came out. People were already pretty down on Atari, you know. Yeah, we had we still have all this Atari crap in our closet. We don't want we don't want another. Atari. But who's this new company, Nintendo, with this little guy Mario? That looks kind of cool, you know. It, it it really it really was all about the company. If, if some random insert random name company that nobody knows about came out with the Atari seventy eight hundred, well, they might have given Nintendo a run for their money. But by the time the seventy eight hundred came out, people were just done with Atari, and, and you can see something similar. Um, with Sega, you know, Sega went through the same thing. The Sega Master System didn't do very well. The Sega Genesis did amazingly well, and and you know that 16-bit war between Sega and, and Super Nintendo was one of the most fun eras to live through mm-hmm. in video games. It was it was so great to watch those two companies compete each other, compete against each other, and take shots at each other, right. and, and kind of push each other to, to to do the best that they possibly can. But then after the Sega Genesis, you have 
the, the 32X, you have the Saturn, you have the Dreamcast, and then Sega just stopped making consoles. Because after the Genesis, people kind of got fed up with Sega. And the, the Dreamcast was a great little console, but by the time the Dreamcast came out, people were like, eh, you know, I'm kind of done with Sega. I got all this crap in my head. It was, it was almost exactly the same story repeating itself. Wow. I don't think I realized that. But you're, you're right. I mean, it's funny because, like, you know, I'm a big pro wrestling fan, and so I always compare stuff to pro wrestling. And so what you're talking about, this the Super Nintendo versus the Sega Genesis, was one of the best moments because essentially Atari came in. They were really unopposed. Um, you know, they were obviously – we talked about a bunch of different companies, but they were the best one unopposed. The Nintendo Entertainment System My came God. out. And and they were unopposed, really. They were the best game system for you know from 83 until 1992. And then, right then, when the Super Nintendo comes out, it's Super Nintendo and Genesis, two great systems. And that's really, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the first time in video game history where you have these two great companies really competing and pushing each other. And, you know, and, and at the same, roughly the same time, around 94, in the pro wrestling world, there were two gigantic wrestling companies because uh, for a long time, WWF was like the company. And they were, you know, the product was okay. But as soon as they had a major competitor... The, that was the best wrestling that is if you're if anyone's a wrestling fan they remember those times as being the greatest time in pro wrestling history and it's the same for video games i'm totally with you i think some of the best games that i've ever played were were on that i had the super i was a super nintendo guy um they were incredible i mean i love the playstation as well when that came out that was a game changer but but i'm with you i i think a lot of the competition stiff competition really creates for the consumer the the best experience possible out there it it is. It, it, those were, in my opinion, the, the best times. You can look, you can look at the the wars that have gone on since then, and I'm air quoting the word wars. But if you look at sure. the, the competition between Sony and 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 Microsoft, uh, the, the PlayStation Two versus the Xbox. Well, the PlayStation Two really beat the hell out of the Xbox as far as sales are concerned. But then you have PlayStation Three and Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty. Well. I think Xbox actually sold more consoles than, than the PlayStation 3 did. Um, at least they did initially. They, they came out of the gate super strong. Uh, but it wasn't the same, though. You know, the, those companies, it really wasn't the same kind of battle. Back back in, at the time, uh, you know, when, when Sega and, and Nintendo were competing in the, the 16-bit wars, um, I mean, it was, it was out in the open. Everybody saw the competition. Everybody benefited from the competition. Even the companies themselves benefited from the competition. But now, you look at Sony and Microsoft, you know, from PlayStation 2 on the, to the current day, and they just don't even really acknowledge the other. It's just like, yeah, those guys are doing what they want. We're doing with what we want. And, and it's not, you know, that all that competition back in the day was good for the, you know, like I said, not only the, not only the, the gamers, but it was also good for those companies to keep them on their toes. And now they don't, they don't, they don't embrace it anymore. They they kind of you know, don't don't even acknowledge it anymore. And I, I don't think that's a good thing. I I think it was uh, like I said. We both agree that uh, those sixteen bit that sixteen bit era was a great time to be uh, a gamer, and and it doesn't feel the same at all now. Well, I'll tell you what part of it is, in my opinion, is that at that time. You know, you, you people really picked sides. I mean, I definitely w- did not have the affluence to be able to afford both systems. So um, you had you were either Nintendo or you were Sega, and both of those game systems felt different. Nintendo had their stable of characters. They had the Mario Brothers franchise. You know, they had all that. Sega had Sonic. Uh, they had the three button controller. You know, they they were very different. With with Microsoft and Sony, 
the games are all kind of the same. There's very few exclusive games you can only get on the Xbox or only on the PlayStation. So it's really a matter of, well, what system do you like? What controller do you like? Um, what, now it's a what, what online you know portal do you prefer? You know, they're not really that different, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It, it, there is there there is no uh, uh, there is no real loyalty like it was back then. It's, it's certainly not as fierce it is as it was. Really, like, and and I sell those systems here in the store and. You know, when people come in and they ask me, you know, what should I get, a PlayStation or an Xbox? The, the first question that I ask them is, what, is, what do your friends have? Mm. Because everything today revolves around being able to play online with your buddies. Right, you know, right. if, if you buy a PlayStation 4 and all your buddies have an Xbox One, then you don't get to play together. So I don't think it matters. It matters to them at all what console they buy. They couldn't care less. They just want to be able to be able to play online with their friends. And beyond that, there's there's no loyalty at all. It's the, the, the day they come out with cross-platform online play, it's its all over. There might as well just be one console at that point because right. nobody's going to care. Right. No, and I think that's an excellent point. And it's, I mean, to me, it's more that's the reason why people are more turning to, like, their desktop. I mean, desktops are more expensive, which is why, like, the consoles are still kind of, in my opinion, still even relevant. But if you can have a PC yeah. or even, you know, even a Mac, like, if you can have a, a great gaming PC that you and you can play with anyone in you know as long as you guys have the same game um what wh- what do you buy in consoles for anymore you know i mean it, it that's really the key is keeping the price down in my opinion um i want to go back i want to talk about some of the peripherals really quickly because we left nintendo pretty quickly and and i want to talk about some of the fun things that in video game history, I, I love these things, these like, uh, you know, kind of gimmicky things. So first of all, I'm sure you remember, I, I, I played with this, one one of my friends had this, and I think it only, so I'm talking about Rob the Robot, Rob, uh, Rob stood for Robotic Operated Buddy, and he was basically like, um, <laughs> yep. I, I don't even know how I would describe him, he was, I mean, he didn't really, he wasn't like AI, he wasn't a robot that actually made any decisions, but you could control him. And I think the only game you could really play was a game called Gyromite. And I think he had these like little tops that he would run and grab, push and and balance on a, on a little piece of plastic that would hit the A or B button on the Nintendo controller. So you could kind of get him to like use a second controller. Um, does this, am I, am I kind of, am I close on this one? You're pretty, you're pretty close. You're pretty okay. close. So Rob, Rob actually doesn't he doesn't move he 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 stays in one spot but his his torso right yeah 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 so okay. he can move his arms he twists left and right and he has these little things that that attach to his base so one of the things that attaches to the base is a little holder for the second controller and what the way that that holder functions is there are there's a red platform and a blue platform right. so Rob will drop the little spinner onto the red platform to hit button A and the blue plat- platform hits button B, and then the game will react based on where Rob has dropped the little spinners. He also he's also able to move over to the left or to the right to to pick up the spinner and then he drops it where, wherever he does. Everything is controlled. Um, he, he's actually a light gun, believe it or not. The way that the way that he works is his eyes are the same sensors that are inside the duck hunt gun. Oh. So the duck hunt gun, as you, as you click the, the duck hunt gun, the way that the duck hunt gun works is 
the screen actually flashes white for a super split second. You can't even tell, you know, with a naked eye, but that little sensor inside the gun can tell where when the screen flashes white. And Rob works the same exact way. In the, the game that, that Rob comes with, which, like you said, is gyromite, every time Rob has to do something, that screen will flash solid white for a split second. Rob will see it, and then he'll do his whatever action is he's supposed to do based on that screen flash. There is also a second game called Stack Up, where it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like cup stacking now. So Rob picks up these little these little cups and he stacks them on on top of each other and stack up. I, I don't I, I actually own Stack Up, but I don't think I've ever played it. What he picks up these little these little cups. <laughs> yeah, I've never. I've never wow. Uh, I didn't believe how many games I own that I've never never played. But he picks up these little cups and he stacks them up and and it's the same same thing though. He it's all based on on. Uh, on the game, the, the game cartridge, and the cartridge tells Rob by flashing that screen white uh, when he's supposed to move and, and what he's supposed to do as far as picking things up for concern. I, I don't think I realized that. I thought he was controlled by, like, the second controller, but that that's really interesting. Because I remember with Gyromite, there were, like, these blue doors and red doors that had to move so you could, like, continue side-scrolling up through the game. Um, that's really cool. I don't think I realized that. But this this was, like, a hallmark of Nintendo, it was almost like, uh, I don't know, it, you know, it's almost like bling, like in today's standards. You know, it's, it's almost like excess for the sake of excess because you created this robot. He was only available, correct me if I'm wrong here, but he was only available with the high-end version because Nintendo, basically, you could buy just the Nintendo system with one controller. You could buy the system with the controller uh, and a game. They had a version with the game and the gun, and then this one, which was one of the first ones, I believe, again, you can correct me, but was like basically the high-end version where you had the game, uh, like two games, I believe is Super Mario Brothers, Gyromite, and then this, this robot, but the robot only worked with one game. At least the gun had like at least two or three games you could play with, but it seemed like such a waste of innovation to, to have this thing. No, it was. You're, but you're right. The, the, it's, it's actually, I'm actually looking at the box that you're talking about right now. It's called the it's called the Nintendo uh, Deluxe. Right. That's yeah, the yeah. one that came with Rob. He was he was sold separate from that Deluxe set, but it's very rare, very hard to find the the loose box, Rob. I I, I have one of those in the in the museum as well. But um, you, you got to keep in mind though, Nintendo Nintendo was trying to revitalize the industry. So you know they people people were done with video games in 1984. So Nintendo's like, well, you know, what, what are we going to do? We we got to have something. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> we got to have something to to catch people's eye. Well, let, let's give them a robot. You know, uh, even if you didn't buy the robot, the fact that there was a robot available for the mm-hmm. Nintendo made it seem like super advanced, super complicated, not complicated, but uh, super futuristic, right, I, I guess yeah. is the word that I was thinking of. But yeah, this is, a, this is, this is the next generation. This is super cool. This isn't no Atari. You know, we have a robot, right? Uh, I, the robot wasn't actually very much fun to play. The game is okay. You know, some, some people will argue with me and say that it's fun, but my, my position on Gyromite is that it, it's okay. Um, but it kind of gave Nintendo something. Like I say, it's kind of uh, uh, bling, or right. I was trying to think of the word that you used. I can't. It was it was something that was going to you know make it set it apart from you know what people just got fed up with and the Atari. The, this is this is new. This is cool. This is futuristic, and it worked. Yeah. And believe it or not, it, it no, I, definitely. I worked. believe it. I knew, I knew a kid who who had one. 
Um, you know, and so the couple of innovations that that it, that Nintendo had, and this is this one is notorious. Uh, but you know, towards the height slash end of Nintendo's dominance, I guess this was at the height really. But they didn't, you know, Super Nintendo came out shortly after. Uh, was was the movie The Wizard, where they revealed Super Mario Brothers three for the first time, uh, which is awesome. And you know, spoiler alert here for anyone who hasn't seen The Wizard. You know, at the end they have this big reveal. I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, because you know, when I'm a kid, you may, I may distort. Uh, I did a whole episode on how your memories can get distorted. And I feel like some of my memories have become distorted when it comes to video <laughs> games. But I remember there was this scene where, um, you know, uh, there the wizard. I don't think the wizard was Fred Savage, but whatever the video game savant is, he's going to play this game, and some kid comes in with like this metal box. And then he opens it up very dramatically, and inside is the power glove, which is a which is basically like a controller that you had on your hand. And so the way they promoted this was you just pointed the glove at the screen, and you moved your hand, you twiddled your fingers, and then you know stuff happened on screen. It was very like you know you mentioned futuristic, uh, and had a pad on the back. From what I understand, I had a friend who actually owned the power glove, but the power glove was in his uh like in his closet and i remember like always looking at it like why are we not we're kids like why are we not playing with this power glove like the, i never understood why he had a power glove and I've, I've never played it so i never got a chance to use it from what i understand this is a pretty crappy peripheral no matter how cool it looked what, what's your take on this yeah no it doesn't it doesn't work very well at all the power glove uh so the way that the power glove worked is there are three sensors that you had to set up on your tv and and it was a uh, like in a bar, so you had to have one sensor in the left corner, one sensor oh, wow. in the right corner, and then a top right corner, and then a third sensor in the bottom right corner. And then those sensors would, would uh, uh, shoot out radio waves, and uh, those radio waves would, would ba- triangulate your position. Tell you where they... <laughs> GPS. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Um, but it didn't work very well. You know, the, the technology was pretty weak. The power glove is, there's actually a super interesting story and you could probably do a whole episode on the power glove because it, it was actually derived from, uh, something like super, super expensive called the data glove, which was a, a computer peripheral that, that they were making that, that was very, very expensive, very, very advanced for its time. Um, and somebody kind of bought that technology and said, yeah, let's make some, make it into a video game controller. Well, they had to strip down every expensive part out of it. And, and it, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that it doesn't work. It, it does work, but just, you know, not, it's not very super responsive or there's lag that, you know, all the things that everybody hates in a video game are present in the power glove games. They do work. You can play it. It's just clunky and cumbersome and more people, you know, more people buy the power glove today just to hang it up on the wall than anybody actually wants to use it. There, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, one of, it's one of those peripherals and there are many peripherals like that, believe it or not, yeah. that, uh, that people just want to have it and not use oh, it. Oh, I believe it. I don't think there's a lot of people using a power glove nowadays. Although I would love to, um, you know, we'll get to your, the museum uh, later on. But I, I you know, I, I do love that in the, the video game, the National Video Game Museum in, in Frisco, Texas, you encourage people to use these things. Do you have a power glove down there that people can use? Because that might be worth the uh, airfare. No, we don't have one out for play. That's one of those things that uh, that we just can't allow people to play with because they they're not very good and people would get frustrated. And people would break it. We do have. <laughs> That's actually really funny. <laughs> we do have the original. 
<laughs> there is no hand-built prototype of the power glove that's built on like a, a mesh glove. Uh, we do have that on display in, in the museum, but it, it's under glass for, for people to only look wow. at. Wow. So you have, I mean, it's amazing you have the prototype. So we're going to get into that. We'll do a little bonus episode. We're going to talk about some of the rare oddities um, so we can kind of give them the give them their due. You, you took a long time getting these things. You're the keeper of a lot of history. We're going to give them their kind of due. Um, so one thing I want to talk about before before we finish up here is you know we've talked about consoles we've talked about a lot of the game systems the companies but there were a lot of actual individual games which were really innovative so I want to talk about some of those um, you know obviously the first one that comes to mind for me that was so different than everything everyone was doing and I believe that we, we I kind of skipped over arcades because that was kind of that's their own world we could do a whole episode on arcades but I believe this game was originally an arcade game and this was nothing, this was like the first interactive cartoon, really. And I'm talking about Dragon's Lair and its, um, predis- or in its uh, sequel, Space Ace. Those really were extraordinarily different games as far as like how the visuals looked. I remember playing it for the first time and like could not figure it out. Um, what, what do you think about Dragon's Lair and how it affected how video games were kind of made up to that point and then in the future? It was, uh, you know, Dra- Dragon's Lair is... Uh... It was monumental. Dragon's Lair was the first game that came out in the arcade that took two quarters. Oh, wow. So every, other, every other game was only, only a quarter, but Dragon's Lair came out, and it was the first game that, that from the factory, it required two two quarters to play the game. But Dragon's Lair was actually animated. It was animated by a, a legendary Disney animator, Don Bluth, who, who also did... Uh, some of Cinderella, I believe he did. Uh, uh, I think he did American Tale. Um, Secret of Nim. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, yeah, Secret of Nim. Yeah. Um, it wasn't so much programmed as it was a, an interactive cartoon. And when you know, I remember walking into an arcade and seeing Dragon's Lair for the first time in, in the eighties. I'm like, oh my god, I, I'm, I'm actually playing a cartoon. Right. And it's funny because. As the video games have progressed, uh, that oh my god moment ha- has happened. You know, w- pretty much with every generation. Like, how could they possibly get these football players to look any better? And every right. de- every generation, they somehow managed to do it's it. Very true. <laughs> they managed to do it a little bit. I-, I remember playing a wrestling game in like the early '90s, and I remember looking at like Stone Cold, and I was like, oh my god, this looks exactly like him, but the face didn't move, but it looks so clear. And now, I mean, like now, it's like they're it's ten <laughs> times better than that. You know, I mean, it's so true. But what happens to years from now is stone cold gonna stand in your living room from a holographic project <laughs> i just can't even imagine what, what's next you know right. give me a stone cold stunner in a haptic <laughs> suit or something like that where i really feel it and like really take the hit <laughs> that's amazing i love yeah, that I, I don't think i want that. <laughs> i like i like that we're at two yeah. opposite ends of that i'm like that's awesome and you're like no way <laughs> no way <laughs> yeah not, but Dragon's Lair was one of those moments, and you know, it, it was uh, it was much it was as much of a cartoon as it was uh, a, a video game. We have um, we've actually met Don Bluth a couple of times, and uh, he's a he's a great guy. Um, we have a pretty huge section in in the, in the museum dedicated to, to Dragon's Lair. Um, we had an artist come in and, and paint this. Uh, uh, I don't know, 20 foot tall mural. It's probably 20 feet wide by I don't know, 30 or 40 feet, or 20 feet tall by 30 or 40 feet wide. And it's the it's the final scene in Dragon's Lair where you're actually fighting. You've reached the dragon oh, and you're wow. fighting the fighting the dragon. And uh, it, this artist, it, it, I mean, it's an it, it, it's something that you have to see to believe. But it's just an amazing job. But Dragon's Lair has a whole lot of history. There's uh, 
um, and like I said, it, it was the first, one of those, one of those very first times where you just said, you know, Oh my God, I, yeah, this, this is real. This is, I'm in a cartoon. I remember playing, I remember playing, um, some of the Mickey Mouse games and like the Lion King game mm-hmm. on, on the, on the Sega Genesis mm-hmm. when they first came out. And I was like, wow, you know, these, these look just, just like the cartoon, but it, you know, it wasn't quite as good as Dragon's Lair because Dragon's Lair actually was a cartoon. Right, right. It was drawn by a cartoonist, and all you're doing is as 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 the uh, as the cartoon pro- progresses, you're telling you know telling which page to turn basically right. in, in in something like a virtual book. Do I do I you know move left or do I move right? Well, if you move right, you die. Right, yeah. <laughs> if you move left, then you go to the yeah. next the next level yeah. it's uh it's kind of an in- interactive cartoon slash book and uh, really one of the first oh my god moments in, in, in my video game uh, history anyway. well you know because it's funny cause i bought it for the iphone so you can actually you know buy it on there and and it's it's funny because the game still holds up and and it was yeah. it's amazing actually how difficult it is i didn't know it cost 50 cents which is i did the math here each quarter around that time was worth 65 cents so you're looking at like a buck 25 each time that you wanted to play dragon's lair and the game wasn't easy it was yeah. it wasn't very long you can oh. beat it pretty quickly if you know the the button movements but it's not a cheap game to learn how to play well um so it's it's actually amazing that, but it still holds up. Uh, so one of the other games that I thought was really inter- really innovative was a game called River City Ransom for Nintendo, and this is really like one of the first like it's almost like the it's it's as close to an open world game as you can get inside the limited capacities of a Nintendo. Because essentially you're like in a, you're like trying to it's like very Double Dragon esque. You're trying to rescue your girlfriend. It's high school. Yeah. You're battling gangs. Uh, but you can buy stuff to upgrade. It's like a role-playing game in that way. You can buy stuff to upgrade. You can get faster hands, different techniques. And then you can save it with the most complicated... I remember having to write down the password. It was like... Um, I think it was like 20 alphanumeric... Uh, cap- like like case-sensitive <laughs> alphanumeric <laughs> passwords. Yep. And as a kid, you know, having to write down yep. 20 characters. But the game was really good. Uh, where do you think this kind of stood? Do you think this was one of the first, like, open-worlding it's important? I guess you could call it that. It was, uh, you know, the funny thing about River City Ransom is it's one of those games that, that people still want to play today. So, you know, there's there's a lot of categories for why people, or a lot of reasons for why people collect games. Nostalgia is probably the, the biggest reason. Oh, I remember that game when I was a kid. Um, but River City Ransom is one of those games that, that people want to pick it up and they want to play it now. So there are, there are and there aren't that many games that are like that. You know, the, in, the, in a very similar, a very similar game, uh, Streets of Rage on the Genesis, Streets of Rage Two. I mean, I've played through Streets of Rage Two probably twenty different times, and it's just it's it's just a fun game to play, regardless of whether there could be better graphics or whether the this or that could be better. River City Ransom, I, I feel, is is isn't the same. People people come and look for River River City Ransom at my store all the time, and the funny thing is, it's not really that rare as far as rare games go. It's like a you know, fifteen twenty dollar game. It's it's not worth a ton of money, but people come and look for that game just to be able to play it. And I think that says a lot about the game. You know, it, it really was breaking new ground at the time. And 
even even though the graphics are Nintendo style and you know, like I said, nostalgia drives most of collecting, so people don't really care about the graphics, but um on, on River City Ransom it's one of those games that people just really enjoy playing. It's just a fun game to play. So I, I think that was one of the first ones like that, in fact. Um, you know, there are there are earlier games that on Atari that are that people just want to play just because they're fun to play, but not not that many and, and as far as uh, that generation, uh, the Nintendo generation, the River City, River City Ransom is, is one of those games that people just they just remember it. it it's just fun, and it's still fun to play today. Yeah. No, and I agree. And it was a quasi open world because you could go anywhere. There wasn't it wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't like Mario where you just got to the level side scrolling, right? I mean, you you had you could do anything you wanted, really. Uh, you just exited the screen, and then you know if you went left, you were in one place. If you went right, you were in another. If you went straight up through a door, you were in another place. Uh, I love that about the game. Um, so now, what, in your opinion, you know, with with the breadth of knowledge that you have, obviously your your knowledge of video games uh, is is much greater than mine. What do you think is the most influential game um, where games kind of weren't the same afterwards? Uh, you know that that's a tough question to answer because you could probably name a game uh, in every. Uh, generation of gaming that that has that same effect you know like the very first game that the very first game that came to mind when when you said when you asked that question is grand theft auto 3 mm-hmm. grand yeah. theft auto 3 was the open world game yeah. um, and and it kind of created a whole new uh, genre of gaming um but you know and then i said well you know i don't know that i would do that you know maybe i would maybe i would choose uh uh, you know, Call of Duty. You know, how many Call of Duties are there now, and how how much money has Call of Duty made? Or maybe I would choose Adventure on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Adventure is 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 one of those games that is still fun to play, but it, it's super simple. But Adventure is the first real interactive interactive graphic adventure game. Right. You know, so That's a good game. I, you know, I don't know that I could nail it nail it down to any particular game. Um, because like I said, I, I think there's one for pretty much every generation or, or yeah, every generation of gaming, um, you know, that, that has changed the rules, so to speak, or, you know, it, uh, my, my, my knee jerk choice is, is probably going to be Grand Theft Auto. Cause I don't think anything has had such an impact on, uh, you know, I, I mean, there were, there were, like I said, there were great games before, and there was even a Grand Theft Auto before Grand Theft Auto yeah. Three. But Grand Theft Auto Three just just came out with this whole new, you know, completely open world and do whatever you want, and uh, you don't have to play the game if you want. You can just drive around and smash up cars, right, or you right. can. You know, it, it just, it just, uh, I think, yeah, the subject matter of Grand Theft Auto, you know, it, it's a little rough, and maybe it's not. Uh, not as as friendly to every uh, every age as, as as you might like, but the style of the game, you know, I, I think it it it, uh, it, uh, it kind of made a genre. I mean, there's a Simpson game, Simpson Sit and Run is is Grand Theft Auto and Simpsons, right? World, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a good game. There's so, there's so many different games that kind of followed that path that that are friendly to all ages, and uh, I think that. Uh, that would probably be my choice, I guess. Well, you know, and I would just challenge you. I would say River City Ransom was was the first open world game. I mean, I think Grand Theft Auto, if that didn't come out of River City Ransom, I don't know what did. I mean, it's. I mean, obviously, it's next step. It's open world. You're going on quests. You can drive around. I understand all of that. 
But at the end of the day, there weren't any open world games before River City Ransom. And I look, I like Grand Theft Auto Three. I think all of your points are valid. Um, I just don't think that it was as influential as the as a game like um, River City Ransom. And when you talk about Call of Duty, I mean, Doom really changed first person shooters. So to your point, I think that there's probably you know a quintessential game that kind of changed the game for each genre of like type of game, strategy, role playing, you know, through third person shooter, whatever. Um, but but like 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 I would I would agree with Doom. I, I wasn't thinking in terms of Doom. Doom to me is a computer game. Uh, I wasn't fair. thinking in terms of, of that's computer, fair. But I would absolutely agree with Doom. Doom Doom rewrote the rule, rules for the first person yeah. shooter. A trick question there. All right, last question for you. What do you think about emulators? Um, you know, these are extraordinary. They're easy. They're basically computer programs. You can have a PC. You can download an emulator download ROMs. You can play all these old games. Uh, I know this is near and dear to your heart because you run uh, a business that <laughs> specializes in old games. Um, but what do you think about, about emulators for, for people having fun? I, I know it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. Even from a business perspective, you know, the, the, uh, the you, you're never going to be able to recreate the sitting on the floor on, on, uh, with a console in front of you um, and and a TV in front of you, and, or sitting on the couch as as, as it may be, it, it's not the same um, as as actually having the same hardware. The you can you can play the game, and it may feel like the same. But if I want to play uh, for Streets of Rage, I'll use as an example again. If I want to play Streets of Rage, I want to play it with a Sega Genesis controller. I want to play it on a on a, on a television, uh, preferably a CRT um, over an LCD. Can I play it on on my computer? Yeah, I could play it on my computer if I set up a, a USB Genesis controller, and uh, it's it just it's just not it's not quite the same. But like I said, a big part of what drives people as far as collecting video games are concerned is nostalgia. So, and the only you know pure form of of their pure satisfaction for that nostalgia is by being able to you know, have a cartridge, have a, uh, a console and, and, uh, have a, an actual, uh, Sega Genesis controller. I don't want to have an Xbox controller, uh, connected to my computer via wi- uh, Bluetooth so I can play, uh, a Super Nintendo game. It'll work, but it's not quite, it's not quite the same. And even if you up the ante and like I said, you get some sort of a USB Super Nintendo controller and, and you play it that way, it's just not, it's not the same, um, you can get your fill that what that does to me and i'll i'll take your 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 question in a little bit different direction um a lot of people ask me my opinion of the nes classic and the super nes classic when they came out like from a business standpoint like oh my gosh is that gonna is that gonna hurt your business because people are gonna be able to buy this nes classic with all the mario games on it and you know no, you know, you know what that did is that that was great for my business. That actually helped my business because before that, there were so many different people competing for the Mario games that I was putting out there, or the Zelda games, or whatever I was putting out on the shelf that that happened to be in that console. And half of those people were just casual people that wanted to relive their youth for two weeks and be done with it. So now all of those people can come and they can buy a NES Classic or a Super NES Classic, and they're they're little. Uh, uh, itch has been satisfied and and they're done and then they leave the real games for the people who are collecting which which is is great I, you know the, those people that are just buying them for a, a fun weekend they should be able to but they made the market so 
tight and so expensive that it was getting unaffordable for even everybody. You know, even the average guy coming in wanted to play Super Mario World on a Super Nintendo was putting down, you know, 150 bucks for one cartridge in a system because everybody wanted them. Yeah, and now, you know, the prices have, have leveled off a little bit on Super Mario Brothers. Now it, it, it's a $20 buck, twenty game like it should be, not a 30 or $40 game. And I, that, that was actually good. So, yeah, I would, I'm okay with people that, that are just looking for a quick fix. You know, if, if playing the game on your computer with, with a, uh, an Xbox controller satisfies that itch, hey, great, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all from a business standpoint and even from a collector's standpoint. I, there's more games for me to collect then, or the games that I'm buying to collect are going to be a little less expensive because you're happy playing on an emulator. So but I'm, if you're happy, I'm Well, no, happy. that's great. I, I do have to take issue with your, with your love of wanting to have that experience because the Nintendo Entertainment System probably had... I don't know how that system became so popular for being so buggy. I don't know a single person who could put a, the cartridge in, push it down, and get it to work the first time without having to blow into the cartridge um but that's just me well that's just that's what ruined it though is all these people blowing in the cartridge when you blow in those cartridges you're just spitting in there yeah, and you make it and wet rusty. and then you transfer that moisture to the contacts inside the nintendo and then it's just the problem is you know i, I deal with that every day at work and yeah, the problem is trying to win that argument with people who are buying Nintendo. Well, you know, I'll just blow it and it'll work. Well, no, don't blow it. You're going to ruin it. Well, it works. Right. Though. So how can you win that right. argument? Yeah, if I blow in a cartridge, it actually plays. Okay, well, do what you're going to do, man. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> I fair. Can't, I can't win that. No, one. that's fair. Uh, but it did make yeah. for a very unique playing experience. So how can people, if they want to come see you in person, <laughs> where can they find you? Are you on social media? How can people get in touch with you? Um, I'm on... Uh, we're on Facebook. My store is on Facebook. The video games, uh, for V Games T and N is the Facebook uh, Facebook page, and then uh, the museum is uh, NVM Museum on Facebook. And then uh, they can come into my store. I'm in Harwood Heights, Illinois. Come on in and see me. I'm here every day. Well, this is incredible stuff. So we're going to sit down and, and talk for a couple minutes about these the rarities that are both uh, that are in your possession and at the museum. Um, but until then, uh, I want to thank you so much for sitting down with me today, Sean. This has been incredible. Sean Mario, everyone. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. A. Parientos with music and sound design written and performed by E. A. Parientos. If you want to learn more about the show, go to fascinatingnouns.com. It's an incredible resource for every episode. We got all the guests at the top, links to every episode. Uh, and if you want to find interesting behind the scenes interesting stuff, you can subscribe to the newsletter at the bottom of the page. And of course, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and tune in. And if you really want to help me out, please leave a review. Recommend the show to your friends. It's how we grow. Uh, you can even link to the show on social media. You don't know the social media handles? That's no problem. I got you covered. Bottom of the page, right-hand side, links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube pages, all at the bottom of the fascinatingnouns.com webpage. And if you like this show, you might like some of the other stuff, like fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies, F triple G B T. Com. That is my latest podcast where I take a team of scientific experts. We look at pop culture technology and tell you how to make it in real life. We got cartoon stuff, comic book stuff. Uh, we got 
alien technology. We cover it all. If you you're in your favorite TV show, your favorite movie, you got pop culture stuff, we will explain it and tell you how to make it. F triple G B T dot com. And if you like those shows, you're gonna love everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to keep up to date. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.